If you want to turn in your Bible and follow along, 1 Corinthians chapter 8 is where we're at. Um, The series is called Christianity Over Culture. And we're looking at how um, we need to be shaped by uh, by Jesus' culture away from the culture that we live in. And so a lot of people think, scholars, pastors, and including myself, that the book of 1 Corinthians could have been written to the church in America. Uh, It really is relevant for us. It really does connect to a lot of the issues we have. You know, the church in Corinth, there's a lot of similarities uh, to that city and to even uh, the Roman Empire, really, um, in a lot of ways. And so um, hopefully... This is really speaking to you and encouraging you in your faith. And there are some touchy subjects that get dealt with in the book of 1 Corinthians. Uh, We get into some adult topics at times. And I just want you to know that those were a little touchy for the church in Corinth too. For those new believers, Um, they were being challenged. And yet they're real issues, real life, right? And so... uh, Just like the Bible deals with real life, the church needs to deal with real life. And so we talk about this stuff. Um, Today we'll take a little break from that, um, from that kind of topic. But we're dealing with something that uh, is really still important for us and a challenge we have in our culture. And so the big idea for chapter 8 is love is better than knowledge. Love is better than knowledge. In fact, I'm going to say that in this chapter, what the Apostle Paul is really going to give us, again, the Holy Spirit is breathing through the Apostle Paul. So this is God's word. And what we're going to find is that knowledge that doesn't begin in love isn't really knowledge that comes from God. If it isn't formed by love, it's useless. It's not helpful. It will be misused. And so we might know something. We might have great spiritual insight or know things But if love is not shaping us, if love isn't forming our lives, then we're going to be off base with that knowledge. It's going to be incorrect. And so that's um, going to be a challenge for us. This this letter, again, written to an immature church and a struggling church, struggling to apply God's word, struggling to grow in their faith. You know, uh, we know the power of love. If you have the testimonies you heard this morning, God's love is overwhelming. His acceptance, his forgiveness, his grace and mercy, it's overwhelming. When we come to him, we recognize who we are and that we need his love and forgiveness. And he just pours it out on us in an unlimited amount, right? And it never ends. It's new every day. And we're never going to run out of his love, his grace, his mercy, his compassion. And so we know the power of love. If, if you know God, you know the power of love. And John 3.16 is probably one of the more famous verses in the Bible. When I was a kid watching a football game, somebody would have a poster board in the end zone with John 3.16 on it, right? And, and every once in a while the cameras would catch that. But John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him will not perish And perish means spend eternity separated from him in hell. Will not perish, but have everlasting life. Be saved. Be moved from death to life. It's the love of God that moved him to sacrifice on our behalf. And so the power of love is central to the gospel. That verse really captures what the gospel is in a lot of ways. And so This culture that Jesus is creating in this early church in the city of Corinth with this small group of Christians, converts to Jesus, 
They put their trust in him. The culture that he's trying to create there is a very different culture than the world around. The city of Corinth was very prosperous. Um, They did everything to excess, right? Um, To Corinthianize was to live to excess in everything. And so they had this this attitude, this aggressive um, um, personality, right, to the city. And so they're aggressively pursuing everything. And they were um, very political and very uh, combative and so uh, they're struggling. I just smile because that's kind of like our culture, right? We're, we're pretty aggressive. We're wealthy. We have a lot. We can go get what we want. We're supposed to go after it. And so that's the culture in this church. And yet Jesus is trying to teach them and teach us to think about others more than we think about ourselves. To be aware of the needs that others have. And when there's a person that seems maybe a little weaker, we don't run over the top of them, Right? But we stop a minute and we help them. We make concessions for them so that they are able to continue in their journey. And so this issue that is going to get dealt with in chapter 8, in some ways we have a little difficulty understanding it. I'm going to do my best to help us understand it and relate to it. But the essence of it is that here was a church that felt like they had some great knowledge, some great insight. And yet they weren't acting towards each other out of love, and so it was creating conflict, conflict for them. You know, this church had some leaders in it, some aggressive people that were moving forward. They were getting it quicker. They were smart. They were fast. They were moving, and and they were at the front of the pack, the front of the church, and they were leading it, and they were moving things forward, and they were the ones who wrote Paul a letter with some questions, and he's going to address some of those questions in this week's in this chapter this week, but they had written and they were having a a problem. There were some people in the church that didn't understand what they understood. They didn't get it yet. And they were frustrated by them. Um, I don't know about you, but it does seem in our world, there are some people that are a little more discerning. Uh, They pick up on things a little quicker, understand things a little more quickly. And, uh, and there can be some frustration with the people that aren't maybe getting it as fast, right? Come on, let, let's go, you know, and, and, and there can be some irritation at that, especially when it crosses up with some of the things that I think and believe, and I get. I want everybody to get it. And so um, that's kind of the tone here in this letter, in this chapter specifically, uh, the apostle's going to address these folks that are at the front of the pack, and uh, he's going to challenge them a little bit. The first thing we see as we start this chapter, is what God values most. I mean, knowledge is very important. I mean, we are set free by the truth. And so understanding the truth that God is trying to tell us and teach us is very, very important. If I understand the truth, then I'm going to be able to tell the lies of the enemy, Satan. I'm going to be able to tell the lies in the world, things that aren't true. I'm going to get it. And so knowledge is very important. It's essential. And yet, knowledge without love can become hurtful. It can cause problems. And so what the Apostle Paul is going to say to this church initially in the first few verses here is that love is really what God recognizes. Follow along as I read the first three verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Now regarding your question about food that has been offered to idols. So they had written him this question. Yes, he says, we know that we all have knowledge. Now, that phrase is in quotes, meaning that he is 
quoting something back to them that they have quoted. This is a saying that they have. We all have knowledge. And so he says, yes, we know that we all have knowledge about this issue. But while knowledge makes us feel important, it is love that strengthens the church. Anyone who claims to know all the answers doesn't really know very much. But the person who loves God is the one whom God recognizes. Again, different culture. Paul's like, you are rewarded in the world, in Corinthian, right, in the city, in the culture that existed there. You're rewarded for knowledge. You're rewarded for knowing. I mean, when you have knowledge, you get ahead. You know where the business opportunities are. You know where money can be made. You know how to get ahead. You know how to get to the the promotion, right? Knowledge and knowing is very powerful. In fact, we have a saying in our culture that knowledge is power, and it really is. And yet, Paul says, hold on, folks, hold on. I know you have knowledge. We all have knowledge on this issue. But what God's looking for in you is love. Do you love him and do you love others? This is going to dictate whether or not you're getting points in God's culture. Jesus' culture is more concerned with that, right? That you get love and are loving others than that you know it all. And so he challenges them. You think you know it all, and he's done this before in this, in this letter. Uh, everybody, people that think they know everything, uh, they don't. You're not as smart as you think you are, right? You kind of hear a parent talking to their kids, okay? You think you get it all, you don't. And so he's challenging their, their conclusion because, again, Jesus' culture is concerned with how we treat each other and that the knowledge we have flows out of the relationships that we have with God and with others. Love is central to Jesus' culture. Central. Love is at the core. I mean, there's some core themes in the gospel. There's some core themes that we need to understand. Obviously, we need to understand what grace is. Undeserved favor. We need to understand mercy. Not getting what we deserve. Right? Those are important. Forgiveness. But love is central. The Bible tells us that God is love and that love originates in him. And he wants us desperately to understand love. And that's why the greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. This sums up the law. And so we need to understand love. We need to be growing in love. Being a powerful person in the world, as I said, is tied to knowledge and insight. But being a leader in the church is connected to how well you are loving others, how much you love God. This is key. Countercultural teaching that Paul is instructing them, pressing them against the cultural values that they've been raised with, that they're still living out even in the church, causing problems. As I said, knowing matters, but what do you know? What do you really know if you have truth and insight? And it's amazing, spiritual insight. But it is leading to conflict with others. It leads you to think you're better than others. Like it leads to that puffed up attitude. That's what he's challenging them on. That's how they're acting. And that's not a sign of maturity. That's a sign of immaturity. Um, If you need to see that in action, go up and uh, 
help the uh, children's workers with the two-year-olds. Like, you'll see, right? you'll see that. <laughs> it's not hard. We, we get that. But, but again, we're struggling to mature. This church was struggling to mature spiritually, to grow up, and to really understand what's important. And Jesus' culture is all about that. Only the knowledge that starts with love is true. Only the knowledge that starts with love, that has its origination in love, that's what is true. And you'll find that all the truth that comes from God is formed out of love. The Corinthians thought that they had this issue figured out, meat offered to idols. They thought they understood it. They had some good logic that they had used. They were smart. They were aggressive. They were intelligent. They were in front of the the class. And they said, Paul, teacher, teacher, we got this figured out. And so they write the letter and you can tell the tone is, we have this figured out and yet there's some people that don't in the church. Paul, would you help us correct their thinking? They're just, they just don't get it yet. And so um, this is kind of the tone with which this letter is written. And so Paul starts off those first three verses by pushing back on what they think they know, what God's really looking for, what really matters. And of course, we need to hear that too. Um, What we find next is that there is a place within the Christian faith for personal convictions. In fact, though we have some truths that we must believe, we don't really have an option on when it comes to this faith. Believing who Jesus is, believing in what he did, putting our trust in him, that's not optional. You can't be a Christian and not have put your trust in Jesus and believe that he is the son of God, that he is the savior of the world. And yet there's going to be some areas, and we're going to find out next, that there, are, there is room for, in fact, it's essential that there's some personal convictions. So personal convictions, what we see is personal convictions are crucial for a Christian. Let's continue reading in verse 4. So what about eating meat that has been offered to idols? Well, we all know that an idol is not really a god. And that there is only one God. There may be so-called gods both in heaven and on earth. And some people actually worship many gods and many lords. Of course, within the Roman Empire, their religion was polytheistic, meaning many. And they worshiped the pantheon of gods. And they added gods and they, you know, they added and subtracted. They didn't do much subtraction, but they added. And so they had many gods. And, and a lot of the people in that culture took it seriously. And so they would worship those gods. Um, we talked about the city of Corinth had a temple to Aphrodite, the goddess of love. And, uh, and so they worshiped. And a lot of people took that seriously. And so Paul says, okay, so we have this understanding that there's only one God, but there's a lot of people that believe there are many gods and they worship them. Verse six, but for us, meaning us Christians, he says, there is one God, the father by whom all things were created And for whom we live. And there is one Lord, Savior, Messiah, Jesus Christ, through whom all things were created and through whom we live. However, not all believers know this. Some are accustomed to thinking of idols as being real. So when they eat food that has been offered to idols, they think of it as the worship of real gods. And their weak conscience consciences are violated. Verse 8, it's true that we can't win God's approval by what we eat 
We don't lose anything if we don't eat it, and we don't gain anything if we do. Okay, so meat offered to idols. This was a big deal in the culture, city of Corinth. And for Christians, obviously to come out of the culture, put their trust in Jesus meant to leave idolatry, the worship of these gods. They could no longer participate in that. And some of the Corinthians, the ones writing the letters, the ones that are at the front of the class, they've figured this out. These gods aren't real. There's only one God. We worship him. All of the rest of this stuff is just fake. It's just nonsense. And so they were not bothered by eating meat, by going to the restaurant, going to the idol, having a good meal, nice steak, right? It's good. It's good food. And there's no problem. There's no issue with it. The problem was there were some Christians who still believed that idols were real and that people worshiping them, people eating at those restaurants, they were participating in idolatry. And so their conscience was pricked. They were bothered by it and they were bothered so much so that it was causing some serious issues. So this is the deal. So what is the equivalent for us? We don't have meat offered idols in our culture. So what are some equivalents? Well, I thought up some. May or may not connect for you, but I'm doing the best I can. It's a little bit of guesswork, a little bit of uh, application and trying to understand what the issue was and what it looked like, right? And so within our faith, there's a lot of things that are black and white. Uh, to be a Christian means that um, there's certain things that are right and wrong and there's really no wiggle room on them. There's no like, oh, well, you know, I can go down a little bit closer to the line on this one, you know, um, and, and still be okay, still be obedient to Jesus. And, and so there's, there's a lot of things or some things that are absolutely black and white. But then there are areas that are, we call gray areas where there's some room for personal conviction. Um, with the work of the Holy Spirit in my life, my interaction with God, he's gonna convict me in areas, right? Related to certain things that he may not convict you on. And so that's part of the Christian life. It's a little uncomfortable because I may see you doing something that I couldn't do and I really feel like it would be sin for me to do it. But because the Bible doesn't expressly state that it is sin, you might be able to do it and it's not sin for you. And so this becomes a little uncomfortable at times. But one area that I've seen in my life that I've run into, I've seen in the church with people is in the area of music. So I have known people that have come to faith in Christ who before they came to faith in Christ and were living for him, they uh, listened to rock and roll or they listened to uh, some form of music that had a whole lifestyle that went with it. And they were involved in a lot of partying, a lot of promiscuity, a lot of alcohol and drug use. And they, like that music is connected to that lifestyle for them. And so when they hear that music, they feel convicted and they can't listen to it. They can't be anywhere where, um, where it's, you know, if they are, they're bothered by it, right? It bothers them in their spirit. And so they have an aversion to it. And for them, they've had to eliminate that music from their lives. And then there's other people that maybe don't have that kind of connection to that music and it's just music to them. And, and so they, they can listen to it. It's just, you know, doesn't have that spiritual impact in their life and it doesn't have that conviction that they feel. Now, country music is that one that's kind of above that. You know, anybody can listen to country music. It's okay, right? Hey, um, so, so we have this issue to wrestle with. It's a real one. And so, uh, and I know in the church, in my lifetime, bringing drums into the church, bringing electric guitars into the church, for some people that felt like we're bringing sin right into the church, putting it on stage. And they felt that conviction by it. And so it was difficult. It's a difficult issue. 
And yet that's an area that the Bible, you know, I had a discussion with a guy when I was in Bible college. He was older than me. He was actually my boss, but we got into a discussion about Christian rock music. And I had knowledge about it. I didn't have a lot of love for him on the topic. Not proud of how I handled that discussion. I'm pretty sure I won the argument, but I didn't win him over. And so, um, and so yeah, there's, there's issues. They, these things affect us. How about going into the bar? Um, I know when I was a kid growing up, my dad was a pastor, leader. And if you were a good Christian, you did not go into the bar. I mean, just we'll have sin written on the door, right? I mean, there's nothing good that happens in the bar. And so you don't go in there. It's a place to stay away from if you are a Christian following Jesus. And yet, um, you know, we, my dad took a little church up in Montana, my senior year of high school. And, um, and there were more bars than churches in town, you know, and bars where a lot of socialization happened and business and a lot of stuff happened there. And so um, one of the criticisms my dad heard was the pastor before him used to go in the bar and talk to people. And that was just wrong. A pastor should never go in a bar. Today you got restaurants and bars together, right? You go in the restaurant and uh, there's a bar there. So it's changed a little bit, but that used to be a big deal. Maybe it still is for some of us. How about drinking alcohol? You know, that's one of those issues. The Bible gives directions on drunkenness and addiction to alcohol and overuse of alcohol. Should not be done. Christian, no room in a Christian's life. But does it really say you can't partake of alcohol at all? Well, I mean, some people argue, well, Jesus made wine out of water, his first miracle. If he was anti-alcohol, maybe he wouldn't have done that. So, you know, there's, some, there's an issue there for some people, some Christians. Stay away from that. Um, it's sinful. They, they can't uh, even be around it. And even to see another Christian participate, partake is they feel uh, um, pricked by that, you know. So that's, that's one that might be in there. How about being involved in politics? I remember when I was a kid going to a church, my dad was in school, and uh, the church was growing. It was in Indiana. And uh, all of a sudden, the mayor of the city started coming to church. And it kind of went around. Can you be a Christian, be a politician? I mean, is that okay? Like, you know, I was a little kid and I heard it, so I'm sure the adults were all talking about it. But, you know, um, what's, what's the deal there? Politicians, you know, I mean, politics usually involves some Perhaps, uh, you know, you got to be, uh, there's some corruption there. There's some issues there. Being a Christian, are you going to have to compromise to do that? Anyway, there's a lot of, there are actually a lot of issues like that. I could go on and on. But, um, but the point is, <clears throat> there's room for personal conviction. And I may have conviction in an area. I cannot participate in that. I can't be around it. I can't be involved in it. Because for me, that's going to pull me away from my relationship with God. And it's going to cause me uh, to go in a direction of sin. And, uh, and I shouldn't do it. And so Paul's saying that is what meat offered to idols is like. There's this issue in your culture. And you need, to be, uh, you need to understand there's different viewpoints on it. And that's what he kind of presents in the first bit. Um, for the, the ones that were more um, knowledgeable in this case, they had figured out that um, idols aren't real. There's only one God. And God doesn't care what kind of meat we eat. We're not getting brownie points if we do or don't eat it. So why does it matter? And so they had this issue on principle that they were in disagreement over. And it's kind of like the married couple that was having some struggle in their marriage. They went to the counselor and they sat in the counselor's office as far away from each other as they could. There's kind of a triangle in the room. And so uh, they were a far away way. And the husband started off, he said, you know, I know I'm right on this issue. I'm absolutely right on this issue. It's a matter of principle. 
And the wife said, no, I know I'm right on this issue, and you're right. It is a matter of principle. And the counselor said, well, I think we've discovered the problem. The problem is that uh, we have an issue of principles. You care more about your principles than you do about each other. Oh. And he said, maybe we need to get you to add to your principle list love and kindness to each other. And so the church here was acting immaturely with their knowledge. They had it right. They had a principle. On principle, they were right. And Paul's saying, but you're getting it wrong. See, when we are formed out of love, our principles change a little bit. They, uh, they are altered a little bit by love, okay? And so the truth is, what we see next is that love will lead you to care for the faith of others. Let's continue reading the rest of this chapter in verse 9. But you must be careful so that your freedom does not cause others with a weaker conscience to stumble. For if others see you with your superior knowledge, eating in the temple of an idol, won't they be encouraged to violate their conscience by eating food that has been offered to an idol as well, right? Verse 11, so because of your superior knowledge, a weaker believer for whom Christ died will be destroyed. And when you sin, and when you sin against other believers by encouraging them to do something they believe is wrong, you are sinning against Christ. So if what I eat causes another believer to sin, I will never eat meat again as long as I live, for I don't want to cause another believer to stumble. Um, Paul says, look, uh, yeah, you, you've got it figured out. Oh, I can have a drink. It's no big deal. I can go. I can order a drink with my meal. It's no big deal. But there's a weaker believer across the room who struggled with it, and they're going to see what I'm doing, and they're going to be, they're going to be, well, if it's okay for him, it must be okay for me. And then all of a sudden, they're back in that trap, right? And so Paul is encouraging them that just because they have this knowledge and awareness of what they can do, what it's okay, we've got it figured out, that if it's not formed out of love, then it causes problems. It can actually hurt the cause of Christ. And he calls it sin. It's sin for you to encourage. Hey, it's okay. Ah, you don't know. You don't understand. The Bible says it's fine. God says it's okay. There's nothing that says it's wrong. You can do it. And I'm encouraging someone to do something that for them is going to destroy them. It's going to crush their faith. See, that's not how we're to live in Jesus' culture. Jesus' culture pulls us and draws us to care more about the people around us and their faith than we care about our freedom. See, love will lead you in the right direction. And so that's the essence of the, of the passage, right? That last verse, Paul says, I'll become a vegetarian. Now, he didn't, leave, he didn't live in ranch country, right? Um, but, but he lived in a culture that sacrificed meat, okay? It was a big part of the culture. So eating meat, you know, if you understand ancient culture, meat was expensive. And when you went to uh, uh, the temples where it was sacrificed, a little bit of a price break. <clears throat> and so it was accessible. It was easy. And they loved, man, meat. Who doesn't love eating meat? But Paul says, listen, that's not the point. I would give it up, okay, if it meant I can help ensure that those around me continue to grow in their faith, that they're successful. They don't get derailed. They don't get discouraged. Um, 
okay, pastor, but what about this? What about somebody who's not a young believer anymore, but they still have an issue on an area that isn't black and white? They still see it as black and white. Isn't that legalism? What about that? And so, um, you know, that is an issue. We've got young um, believers that we're trying to encourage, and we kind of can all say, yeah, we should be careful. We should make concessions for them to ensure that they continue to grow. They're not discouraged. So what I do matters uh, for them. But what about the people that have been around the church 20 years, and they're still getting on me for something that it's not really wrong, Pastor. Aren't they really just a professional, weaker brother, you know, as we used to to be called when I was growing up? And and so that's a question um, on areas uh, that are perhaps gray areas. Well, I think this, I think love, again, will lead us past legalism to have a heart to fight for the faith of others. And so again, um, when I'm struggling with someone's view of something, I need to ask the reason why do they continue to have that stance? Well, they're a leader or they should be past that and they still are legalistic about it. Well, sometimes there's a transition that takes place. When a person follows our mission statement, which is that we're a church on mission to raise up disciple makers who share the gospel where we live, work, and play, to become a disciple maker is to become a spiritual parent. It's to help raise other believers up. And what happens is when I step into that role and I get that mindset, I just care a lot less about myself, what I get to do. And I care about others. And there's a way in which, as a spiritual leader, I can actually come to the point where I say, you know what? It'd just be better off as a church if we didn't do that. It's kind of like we say, listen, if we have a church event, you have a life group in your home or whatever, but you're meeting as a church for a church event, no alcohol, right? We say that because it can become a problem, and it is a problem for a lot of people. And so we don't want to cause that. So just leave that out when we meet together as a church for church function, right? And I think that's wisdom. I've found that's one area that if you don't, if you're not careful with it, it will cause problems. And so um, it can blow things up. And so, yeah, there's, there's a sense in which as I grow to be a spiritual parent, I'm a disciple maker that I gain that kind of wisdom. And I'm willing to put things aside. But I also need to know that legalism is not um, okay. It's not okay to continue to say something's wrong, right? You shouldn't do that when um, the Bible doesn't say that. So we have lists of rules, and sometimes those rules, they, they do change. And uh, sometimes they look silly down the road um, when a little time has gone by. There was a young man that came to Christ, and he was really earnest about um, getting it right. And he knew he needed to leave the world system and change. And so he was asking a group of Christian leaders, what is it that I need to give up uh, if I'm to follow Jesus? And they said, well, first of all, you need to give up colored clothes. Get, everything, get rid of everything in your closet that isn't white and just wear white clothing. Second, stop sleeping on a soft pillow. Um, that would be a, a wrong thing to do for your faith. You need to give up that comfort. Next, sell your musical instruments. Don't eat any more white bread. Um, I kind of like, well, the first one. If you're really sincere about obeying Christ, don't take a warm bath anymore. But secondly, don't shave your beard. <laughs> which I do agree with that one. To shave is to lie against him who created us to attempt to improve on his work. God made a man to have hair on his face, right? I mean, how can you mess with that? Hey, um, and so this was a list. Now this list was given by uh, most Christian schools in the second century. 
after Christ, 200s BC. And some of those sound kind of silly. We go, what are they talking? What were they thinking? White bread? (laughs) I mean, now people say it's not healthy, but we don't listen to that. I mean, it tastes good, right? No. But, uh, but, you know, they they said, yeah, this is what you should do. And so we got to be careful of that. Here's what I would say. And I think we see it in this passage. As I grow, the actions of others affect me a little bit less. I'm less concerned about what other people do before God. I'm more concerned with my own convictions and living them out. Too mature is to have my own convictions and to live out my faith before God. I'm not um, motivated towards my freedom primarily because, again, that's selfishness. But I really am aware of the areas that could cause other people to get tripped up, to drive them away from the faith, maybe cause them to quit coming to church and trying to follow Jesus. And so with maturity as a spiritual leader, I gain that perspective and I'm growing in that direction. So my knowledge, my freedom, what I understand is informed by love. Is your faith being used to fight for the success of others or to justify your own behavior, what you want to do? Lastly, I would say this, maturity will lead you to care less, as I said, about what others can and can't do and to focus more on your relationship and your convictions before God. The Bible's very clear that if you feel convictions, you need to keep them. And you, you need not have anybody encourage you, move you in a direction where you feel a conviction against it. Listen to the conviction. That's the Holy Spirit within you. Don't disobey that. You will do that at your own peril. Secondly, maturity will lead you to care more about how your actions will affect the faith of another person. And so these are areas we need to grow in. Again, the church in Corinth was immature. This letter was written to them to challenge them to grow. We need the same message because in America, we have a tendency to stay immature. It's very comfortable. We're very prosperous. We have lots of shiny things that we can pursue and go after and get. And listen, that's not all wrong, but we need to ensure that we're paying attention to our spiritual growth. You should be more mature as a follower of Jesus today than you were a year ago. You must be making progress. And here's why. Because you and I are called on mission into this world. We're called to help others. And so as we're growing, we gain that ability to help the people around us find Jesus too. We're not just here for our own enjoyment and pleasure. We're here to be vessels of the gospel, to help those around us find Jesus. I can tell you right now, It sure seems to me, I don't know what you're all experiencing. I hear stories, I experience it myself, but it sure seems like there's a lot of people asking questions right now, looking for guidance, looking for something. And you know, that's why we're here in this community is to make that kind of impact. And so I would just challenge you on your behaviors, on the things you understand as a Christian. Yeah, but are you handling them with maturity? Are they coming from a place of love where you're concerned for others, the people around you? You don't want to trip them up on their journey to Christ. You want to make sure they make it. You want to make sure they get into heaven. That's what matters most. So are you working to become a Christian who reproduces yourself, who can help someone else learn to follow Jesus too? If you've got any questions, you want to grow in that, talk to Pastor Luke. He's our discipleship pastor, and he's here to help help get you involved, help you get connected into a discipleship process so that you are growing intentionally. You are being trained in your faith so that you can help others.
God, thank you for your goodness to us and thank you for your word. Thank you for the gospel which saves us. Thank you for your love which transforms our lives. And Father, I pray that you continue to shape us by that love. Help us to grow because of your love for us. And help us to grow at loving you and loving others more. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.